Each cloud provider offers a different set of services which are not always compatible with each other. What are the challenges of building an application that interoperates with multiple different clouds? The first issue is API compatibility. To get these different cloud providers to interoperate with each other, we need to have compatible APIs. And most cloud providers do have a managed SQL offering and a bucket storage system and server abstractions like virtual machines and containers. But these tools might have different APIs on each cloud. The code that you wrote to save your application data to Amazon S3 might have to be rewritten if you decide to switch your bucket storage to a different provider. Another issue that interferes with cloud interoperability is the degree of integration on a particular cloud. If I build my application for AWS, I might be heavily integrated with Amazon's identity and access management policy system, or AWS logging. Each cloud provider makes it particularly easy to connect with their vertically integrated solutions. There's also the problem of services on one cloud that simply do not map to a service on any other cloud. Google Cloud Bigtable does not have a directly equivalent service on Amazon. Microsoft Cosmos DB does not have an equivalent service on DigitalOcean. As developers, this interoperability irritates us. We want to be able to deploy our application to any cloud. We want to be able to move applications easily from one cloud to another. We want a straightforward failover strategy from one cloud to another. And we want to mix tools from different clouds together as easily as we import libraries in languages. Basam Tabara is the CEO of Upbound, a company that's focused on making multi-cloud applications easier to deploy and operate. I spoke to Basam at KubeCon EU 2019, and he described the problems of multi-cloud deployments and the opportunities for the cloud-native ecosystem to become more cross-compatible. Basam is a great guest. He's been on the show before, and I think you'll enjoy this episode. Some upcoming announcements. We've got conferences I'm attending, Datadog Dash, July 16th and 17th in New York. I will be there. The Open Core Summit, September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. We are hiring two interns for software engineering and business development. If you're interested in either of these positions, you can send me an email with your resume to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Put internship in the subject line, preferably. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. We launched several new features recently. If you have a cool project that you're working on, I would love to see it. I check out every project that gets posted to Find Collabs, and I've been interviewing people from some of these projects on the Find Collabs podcast. I am happy to see your projects on Find Collabs if you post them. We have a new Software Daily app for iOS. You can become a paid subscriber for ad-free episodes at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. If you've checked out the iOS app before, I recommend giving it another shop. We've made some great updates recently, and Android updates are coming soon. With that, let's get on to today's show. Basam Tabara, welcome to Software Engineering Daily once again. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for coming back on. We've done 
several shows. I like talking to you because you have a deep perspective on the different cloud providers, but you are not from any particular cloud provider. Your company, Upbound, is about managing cloud compute resources in a cloud-agnostic way. Can you give me the vision for how you see people managing compute resources in two, five, ten years, however long you think it'll take to get to a place that satisfies the minimum version of your vision? Sure, I can try. I mean, essentially, the the way that we like to think about cloud computing going forward is that we, as a community, can arrive at a more open cloud computing platform. It essentially gives people more choice. So what does that mean? Let's unpack that a little bit. I think, you know, if you think about every cloud provider today, the way that, you know, you consume their services is that you go talk to their proprietary control plans, you're using their API, you are deploying and managed services on their platform. And whether you're using open source or not, you're always going through their proprietary control plans and using their kind of infrastructure. So we think that the world going forward should look more like, you know, a more open cloud platform that lets you deploy and run infrastructure wherever you want it to run without having to essentially retool and re-engineer your applications and services every time you want to make, you know, run on a different environment or a different platform. So we think portability is interesting. We believe that there needs to be a more open cloud computing platform. And so both of those things are interesting from, uh, from you know, the thing that gets us excited about what we're doing at Upbound and, and what we're doing in general in the open source community. That sounds not dissimilar from Google's cloud vision. They say, we are the open cloud. How does your vision differ from theirs? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of different companies that are talking about open cloud, and now multi-cloud is a thing. I think the, the thing that's interesting to us is that we think that if you are a cloud provider and you're you know spending $10 billion in CapEx every year, and the business model is such that you are making money on renting compute hours, you're at odds with essentially being a cloud agnostic platform for computing. And we think that it needs to be more of a community driven effort and one that's not tied to, you know, the running data center business. So at Upbound and some of the projects that we do, we are, we, we don't, we're not in the data center business. We're not in the CapEx intensive running data center business. And so as a result, we take the side of the enterprise and the community in, the, in terms of what, you know, enabling more choice, enabling the best deployment, doing the best policies for where things should run. And we think that that's actually a better place to be than, you know, potentially leading with something that is multi-cloud, but really the end game is to run on one cloud. When you start a company, you do have to have a vision, which the vision you had when we first talked a couple of years ago is consistent with what you have today. So I think you got the vision right initially. When you start a company, you also have some initial set of tactics that you're going to execute on those tend to change. Those tend to be more 
uh, adjustable than the vision for the uh, initial company. How have your tactics evolved as you've started to implement this strategic vision for cross-plane and upbound and your multi-cloud vision? I mean, I think one of the things that we knew early on is that we should lead with and we should be you know, active participants in a community-driven effort around you know, the vision of an open cloud and a world where you have more choice around cloud computing. And so, so we, you know, we didn't really know what that meant when we started. We thought you know, we were, we had this Rook project, which is really successful. We've been working with the community. We learned a lot about community engagement and how to drive a, a healthy community around the Rook project. And we thought well, we should go create a set of different, you know, uh, pieces that enable us to arrive at a more open cloud computing platform. And, you know, there are things like Kubernetes and other projects around it that are, you know, super amazing and super useful. We thought there were some missing pieces, but we didn't really know how to essentially position them. Is it one project that's going to do that? Is it multiple projects? And we kind of organically found our way into starting the cross-plane project, which we thought was a centerpiece of you know any cloud offering as a control plane. And so we we kind of pushed that out on a Mostly, you know, here is the vision. Here is a essentially a, a, a POC, right? Version zero point one that brings it all together, but is true to the vision. And we, at this point, are now iterating with the community on this. And I think that's an important step in the sense that, you know, you're not, you know, all in a room. You're actually working all together in the open, trying to get the project to get a certain level of adoption. In terms of what tactics changed, honestly, I think we're trying to put things out early and work with the community because let the community drive where we want to go as opposed to you know working out in isolation and trying to figure out okay here's the grand strategy and here's the grand plan we're learning a lot from you know being early and in the space and and from uh engaging with folks on these projects it's a strategic template i think where you started with the broad vision, which is something that people absolutely want, plus a very specific project, which is Rook, this storage interface for using... I mean, I believe the, the initial spec was is kind of like being able to use Ceph with Kubernetes, right? Ceph, which is this um, way to manage storage in a cloud-agnostic way that is kind of difficult to use, if I understand correctly, and Rook was sort of a, a shim over it that made it a little bit easier to use and more more specifically easy to integrate with Kubernetes. Was, is that accurate description of Rook? Yeah, so that's roughly how it started. We realized that there was plenty of data planes for actual storage, putting bits on disk. But what was missing is a, essentially an orchestrator for them that helps them integrate into cloud-native environments. And so we started with Rook and built an orchestrator for Rook, and now we've got seven other storage backends as part of Rook that we're orchestrating and more coming. And so essentially Rook became data control plane right. for the cluster. Right. So what I, when I said a strategic template, what I think you have with the Rook project plus the vision for the company is, okay, we have a vision for what we want to accomplish. We've got an open source project that is kind of like a su small subcomponent of that vision. And we're going to kind of just play in this space 
talk to people, see what happens. It's kind of like how the Linkerd team started, the Buoyant team. They said, okay, we've got Finagle. We think this probably belongs, like something like this belongs somewhere in the ideal stack. We wanted to help people with microservices or whatever you want to call these cloud-native deployment schemas. And we don't really know what the business model is going to be. We don't really know what the product is going to be. We've got an open source project. We're going to nurture it, and hopefully it turns into something. That seems like not a bad strategy for this kind of market where you've got venture capital dollars sloshing around, looking for cool projects to invest in. You've got technical teams that are passionate about their community working on an open source project with no vision for making money anytime soon. That's actually a really good strategy. It's a great strategy, but I also think that you should definitely be thinking about not only the vision, but also like how to actually make money as well. So you should think about, should have, you should have an idea. You should have an informed idea of where there is a business and how to get there. You might be completely wrong about it and you should be totally open to like, you know, experiment and iterate, but not having an idea means that you spend also a lot of time building things that are, you know, engineering for an engineering sake or people that customers don't actually want, or maybe you find a, a niche of users that tell you they really want this thing, but there nobody wants to pay for it or nobody, it doesn't lead into a business. And so I think if you define a success of a project as just community adoption, then that's great. But you should also think, I think about like, how do you arrive at a business around something? Because that's, that's when you know, it gets to the next level. So I, I think I, your point is interesting, but I don't think you should ignore the fact that all this VC money is, you know, in it also for, right. you know, essentially building healthy businesses around vision and, and teams. Right. The thing you and I were talking about yesterday was that, First of all, you you built Crossplane. We did a show about that in the past. Crossplane is a, you know, it, honestly in that show, but basically in our last two shows, both times have been somewhat confused by what the heck you're doing because it's a little, it's technical and it, 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 it's been hard for me to wrap my head around. Crossplane is a multi-cloud control plane. I wasn't really able to understand it from that show, uh, although people can go back and listen to it. Maybe they'll understand better than I did. But when I heard the example that you told me last night, it actually made a whole lot of sense. We were talking, and this is public, right? The GitLab thing. Okay. So GitLab can deploy GitLab itself using Crossplane. And I want to describe this example in more detail. But first, in order to, to describe that example in more detail, I think a lot of people have heard about GitLab, but they may not understand exactly what it is and how it gets deployed. Explain the typical deployment model for GitLab. So GitLab has essentially a Helm chart. It, they run on Kubernetes. They have a Helm chart that essentially packages all their configuration for all the deployments and you know replica sets and all the Kubernetes. Uh, GitLab is self-hosted Git. Pretty much, yes. So you, a typical customer of GitLab will say, I pick a cloud provider of choice and they'll say, we want to deploy GitLab there. And it looks like something like, let's say it was uh, AWS, right? So they can go light up 
the customer would light up an EKS cluster, run the Helm chart for GitLab, deploy all those things. They'd have to go provision a database in RDS, Postgres database. They'd have to create all these different S3 buckets. They'd have to go um, run a, create a Redis cluster, maybe through Elastic, Elastic Cache and set up all these security groups to open up all these you know rules, security group rules, get it all working all maybe using CloudFormation, a bit of CloudFormation, maybe using a bit of Ansible, maybe using, you know, calling CLI in AWS. And then the piece that's in Kubernetes is fairly standardized because it's, you know, Kubernetes, it's the Kubernetes API. And so one of the things that Crossplane does that helps with that problem is that we're able to do deploy GitLab on the different cloud providers using just the Kubernetes API. So that's the that's the piece that we showed off yesterday with GitLab and do it in a way, in this case, that is portable across clouds. Okay. And so the thing is, a lot of people probably have only interacted with Git to the extent that they are reading and writing Git commits to their local repository or to a repository on GitHub. What's actually going on there is you've got a complicated distributed system that's hosted in GitHub where they're doing things to make your Git repository reliable, easily accessible, the API layer is scalable, and so on and so on. When you decide, I want to go with GitLab, and I want to manage this thing myself, and I want to be in the GitLab ecosystem rather than the GitHub ecosystem, if you want to self-manage it, you're going to have to spin it up on a cloud or on your own servers. But assuming you want to spin it up on a cloud, you have to be the one who sets up that complicated distributed system. You have to be the one who sets up the metadata store in the MySQL database or Postgres database or whatever database it is that describes the schema for your GitHub repository. And the reason this makes it such a, such a good example for what you're doing with Crossplane is in order to deploy and host a a distributed system that is as complicated as GitLab, you have to go through a bunch of steps. You have to go through a big like documentation plus tutorial thing. That's despite the fact that GitLab is a unicorn company that has every interest to make it as easy as possible to deploy GitLab. The point is that there is no way to make it easy to deploy that is the problem you are solving. That's one of the core pieces of Crossplane, which is how do we, the realization was we as an industry have now arrived at a standard API for running containers and essentially the volumes that they consume. And it's a standard API in the sense that I can go anywhere across every cloud provider and across on-premise environments. And as long as everything fits in containers and volumes, I'm able to do that in a uniform, consistent, standardized way across clouds. But when it comes to things like what GitLab needs, which is Redis, Buckets, Postgres, and all these other things, the choices that you have is either run all of those on a Kubernetes cluster, complex systems like Postgres and Redis and that you'd have to now manage yourself, or you have to leave the standardized API of Kubernetes and use something completely different outside of it. And so what Crossplane's doing is saying, hey, how about you manage all this infrastructure, including that your cloud provider offers from the Kubernetes API? 
So why don't we arrive at a, why why don't we push the standardization line further beyond containers and beyond volumes and have it include things like Postgres, object storage, Redis, MySQL. How about even clusters themselves? EKS, GKE, AKS. Why don't we make those all standardized APIs such that you can take something like GitLab and the way that you deploy it becomes kubectl apply GitLab. And that's the only command you run to bring up production-ready GitLab on the different cloud environments that you want to run on. I was talking yesterday to somebody about the operators, the Kubernetes operators, and I've done a show on Helm, and you mentioned Helm charts a little bit earlier. Helm charts are kind of a, a package manager, maybe you would you could say like a- it's it's three pieces. It's like a templating language for YAML, a package manager, and a lifecycle manager for lifecycle management of you know essentially how to install upgrade applications. Okay, so Hel- Helm charts let me deploy and install distributed systems to a Kubernetes cluster. The operator pattern or the operator system gives me a way of deploying higher level complex distributed systems that may involve Helm charts. I think of uh, operator pattern as kind of a, a more declarative Helm kind of maybe. I would say that what the operator pattern kind of provides is the ability to run, you know, custom operations logic, a controller, a custom controller of some sort that follows the, you know, Kubernetes style reconciliation where you're reconciling desired state and active state. You don't necessarily do that in Helm, but I mean, you can install operators through Helm, which makes this even more confusing. But when you write an operator, you're basically adding new declarative logic, right? You're, that's reconciling declarative state with you know, observed and desi- actual state. And you might be describing, uh, okay, I want a Cassandra operator because I want a Cassandra cluster. Cassandra's hard to operate. Yep. Hey, Kubernetes, give me the storage and et cetera, stuff that I need to run a Cassandra okay. cluster why can't I just use the operator pattern to spin up GitLab? That that's a very good question. So let's let's break it up. Let's take your before we get to that. Let's talk about Cassandra as an example. So the choices are, you could use if you're in a cloud provider or you that has a fully managed Cassandra service, right? Or maybe you're using data stacks as I mean a fully managed service offering. That's, you basically consume that through an API. You say, I want a Cassandra cluster. You can set configuration on it through an API. It doesn't matter how it's running. It's the cloud, it's the, the software vendor or the provider's choice of technology for running it. But they're giving you an SLA and they're telling you you can consume that and they're, they're responsible for scaling it, backing it up and dealing with failures and upgrades and everything else, right? So that's one deployment option, a fully managed service managed service offering, right? The next level from that is that I want to run it myself. I want to run Cassandra myself, whether it's on Kubernetes or somewhere else. If you're running it on Kubernetes, you have two choices. You could either say, I'm going to just run it as a stateful set that I deploy through a Helm chart or however I deploy it. And you're using the basic primitives of Kubernetes to manage you know, 
a Cassandra deployment, or you're using an operator. And the, 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 the idea of the operator is that it's actually automating some of the tasks that you would have to have done by yourself, whether it's the scaling of a Cassandra cluster or it's the upgrade or dealing with all the kind of consistency issues while you're upgrading and fault tolerance around that. There is a fair amount of automation that you can do around that, but it doesn't get you all the way to a fully managed service and it certainly doesn't give you an SLA. So there's essentially a spectrum of automation starting with very little automation. I'm going to run it myself in stateful sets to operators all the way to fully managed services, right? You know, Rook has, Rook, we just talked about Rook as a project, has a Cassandra operator as one of the things that we orchestrate in Rook is a Cassandra cluster, right? And so to your question, you know, back to GitLab, GitLab consumes Postgres databases and consumes Redis. Should somebody deploying GitLab in a cloud provider, should they use an operator to run the Postgres database that GitLab consumes? Should they, or should they use a fully managed service, right? I think GitLab would tell you, and in fact, you go to their documentation, they highly recommend that you use the fully managed services of the cloud provider. And so if you do that, you're stepping outside of the Kubernetes world and you have to do something very different. So what we've done is we brought all of those under the Kubernetes API. If you wanted to use an operator, you can. We created an abstraction in Crossplane called Redis. It's a Redis claim. If you ask your applications built and your application says, I need a Redis cluster, that Redis claim could be served by an operator running Redis in cluster or a fully managed service that is, you know, in your cloud provider and it serves claim, the same Redis claim. The same claim. Redis right. claim is persistent volume claim. It's not. It's actually a new type. Well, it's called a new a Redis. type of claim. Yeah. So we added all these different kind of claims following the pattern. What of, is a claim? Define that, that term, claim. It's essentially a request to provision or use some piece of infrastructure or a resource, and it acts as a claim for it. So it acts, It you can track what it's bound to. So you, when you say, I need a Redis claim, you're basically, from a, from a developer or an application owner perspective, describing your request for Redis. I need it to be a certain version. I need it to have... Uh, certain properties on it. You can define all of that in part as part of the claim. So the idea is basically you have a container that's anchored somewhere. It's anchored, let's say, in AWS. If you want to attach storage to that container, that container needs to establish or create or instantiate a claim. And the claim says... I need storage somewhere or or I I need resource somewhere. That's Maybe right. it's a persistent volume claim where you're saying I need persistent storage. Maybe it's a Redis claim where it says I need a Redis That's exactly store. Right. Redis store has different persistence properties more broadly than than persistent volume claim. Uh, maybe you say, I have a queuing claim. I need a queue. You could imagine a range of specificity, inheritance hierarchies that could Satisfy, they could be uh, you know, applied to a claim. And the usefulness of the claim is it's saying, here, I need this thing, connect to it somehow, but the thing that you are connecting to the claim, like the, whether it's the persistent volume or Redis or whatever other 
queue, something you need to spin up to connect to that claim can sit on another cloud provider. It can sit somewhere else. Or be an operator in a cluster or be, okay. right? So you're creating essentially a layer of indirection, like all problems in computer science can yeah. be solved by an indirection. You're creating a layer of indirection uh, where you've said, from the developer's perspective, they're going to define their requirements in terms of setting these claims. And that claim could be bound to different implementations of it, depending on the environment or depending on the policy that an administrator wants to set. And so if, if you're running in a cloud provider and they have a Redis fully managed service, we bind the claim to it. If you are running on on-premise or on-premises and you don't have that choice, you should probably run an operator for Redis. And the claim is bound to that. And in both those cases, the application does not change. It's the infrastructure or the, the admin perspective of this that does change. The, the model is very similar to persistent volume claims and storage classes in Kubernetes today, but it's now goes beyond just volumes. It goes to Redis and Postgres and uh, all the different things that typical, you know, modern distributed applications require. One reason I think this is significant is if you think about the open source applications that have taken off, they're mostly developer tools. The consumer-facing open source tools are like it's like WordPress. You know, you've got WordPress. You've got how much else? It's like WordPress. That's it. But it would. There are a lot of applications that you can imagine. Like, why don't we have an open source TurboTax? Right. Because nobody knows how to deploy that thing. And like it's not in anybody's really interest to me. I mean, it wouldn't make sense. We should have an open source TurboTax. Why not? But probably part of the impediment is the person who writes the open source code, who would hypothetically write it, would be like, oh my God, setting this thing up to be deployed easily would be impossible. Therefore, I'm going to be managing it myself. And open source doesn't actually matter Therefore, why am I even doing open source? I'm just going to be a proprietary and, and so service think, provider. Think about what you just said in the context of what we saw with Kubernetes in the last few years, right? Most applications today have some kind of Kubernetes deployment. And the reason that that became easier is because we've standardized on how to run containers and their volumes, right? So the, the logical question becomes, why don't we standardize on more than just containers and volumes? Why don't we standardize on Postgres and MySQL and yeah. Redis and other components that are critical and highly used from most applications? Right. If we were if we were able to push the standardization line even higher, then, as you said, things deploying and running infrastructure becomes easier as a whole. Yeah, like it becomes it becomes easier to do that without. And if we can do that in a way without changing the, you know, uh, managed service and deployment model of clouds, and having people give you an SLA, that's actually uh, even even better, right? And we don't have to, we're not pushing problem one from one side of a, uh, you know, one side to another. We're actually using things as they were intended to be used, but still standardizing on how to consume them. 
As you're working with GitLab, is it giving you any insights as to what your business model is going to be for Upbound? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we're ready to talk about uh, the exact business model around us. But I, what, what's interesting about GitLab is it's and having GitLab be deployed through cross-plane in a portable way across clouds is it it makes this just all the more real. It's a really yeah, it's, it's a great a, use case. It's a great use case. It's like having uh, a real world application and GitLab is is an amazing product, but it's also no, it's it's complex. There are lots of different moving parts to bring up something like GitLab. So the cool thing is working with them is that getting that to be here is my configuration for running GitLab, and it's written in a way that consumes all these claims, but, and then somehow the magic of deploying and running it in clouds happens in a standardized way. Seeing that come up end to end in the different cloud providers is really like brings a lot of validation to the approach. So that that's the part that, you know, we announced yesterday and we're excited about. You can imagine you know, upbound being in the business of making that available to enterprises so that they could write their services and applications and reuse them and have a, you know, a place for them to be able to kind of run and deploy and manage them across different cloud providers. That's the path that we're getting, we we get excited about from a business standpoint, but it's, it's still pretty early for us. So maybe you could, it was maybe something like, you don't have to talk about this, but you don't have to tell me if I'm right, but you could imagine like the upbound configuration marketplace or something where GitLab strikes a deal with upbound and in exchange, upbound has a marketplace where basically you go into upbound, uh, upbound is your company for listeners who didn't know, and the user can say, I want to deploy GitLab in a way that has my Redis on Amazon, my MySQL on Google, my Q on DigitalOcean, whatever, and maybe you as Crossplane get a cut of that, or maybe, or you could do consulting or something. You got a lot of interesting business models you could go towards. But yeah, I guess the, the one thing that we're doing that we feel kind of strongly about is that that whole path, including the control plane and provisioning and picking of, you know, in your example, which where to deploy things, that whole path is open and is community driven. And so if there are companies like ours that will have, will be commercial, providing commercial products around it, we feel that that's more about a hosting a managed service or a SaaS offering around it and still enabling everybody else to do the same if they wanted to. It's just, we, you can't arrive at an open cloud without the entire path of provisioning and deployment being open. What about what if you had a marketplace? Would you make the marketplace open? Open source. Uh, we, we'd be open to yeah. We 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 would think about that. That's very committal. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. That's very non-committal. Would you? I mean, no, no. But seriously, this is. I this mean, is, I, t- I would tell you about, it, but we're we're early. I <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I I don't blame you on making. But this is one thing. Like you heard my conversation with Eric Brewer, where I was like kind of interrogating the idea of the open cloud a little bit because not that I'm opposed to it. Like I'm certainly a fan of whatever. I mean, I'm certainly a fan of the cloud becoming more open than it is in the days of AWS, like total dominance. Right. But it is kind of a a question that I think people like you and more immediately Google are going to have to, to reconcile with like, 
okay, if we're open, does that mean that we need to fall under a certain set of licenses? Or does that mean that we need to open source our marketing strategy? Does it mean we need to open source like what kind of stuff Istio is doing to like pull the puppet strings of the CNCF? Like, or, or maybe I'm just being conspiracy theorist here. Maybe none of this matters. Maybe I'm totally wrong. I mean, it seems like there are some open questions to what it means to be an open cloud. I completely agree. And I think if you, yeah, it's, it's like, I think if the look at some of the things that we, you know, we've seen in the last few years, certainly people are cloud providers are willing to invest in open runtimes. So if you look at a Kubernetes, you could describe it as a runtime for running containers, right? And it is open and it's community driven and it's has a healthy community around it and an open governance model. And it, that's great. But all the things around hosting Kubernetes and right. cluster management right, GKE. and policy management and I am privileges. All the everything else around it is all closed source and proprietary. Right. And so it's a logical question to ask is like, is that an open cloud? Right? Or should the should the definition of an open cloud go beyond compute runtimes and also include all the cluster management and policy management, configuration management, the control plane, the API around it, the you know authentication and policies around it, and everything else. What about should we go all the way to cluster management software for things like MySQL and Postgres that are behind the managed services? Right. What, where do we stop? How do what what at what point do you say we've opened up enough? And what you see right now is that you know. If you're running a business where you're spending $10 billion in CapEx spend to build data centers, you have to have something, a, a big part of it that's actually, you know, you can lead with open, but there's a big part of it that's actually closed because how do you differentiate from the other cloud providers? I don't know, man. Here's the thing is like, even if Google was to open source GKE and publish the spec for the TPU, or I don't know if it's already published, and open source BigQuery, like, who's going to run that? Are you afraid of, like, DigitalOcean stealing your GKE technology, stealing your TensorFlow managed service technology? Like, that seems On the flip side, you can ask the question, what, what, when I do pay for, you know, whether it's Anthos or GKE or others, what am I paying for? The data centers? That's right. So, but it's also the management and this experience around, you know, somebody else doing the security patches and updating yeah, it. Yeah, those too. A bunch of those are actually automated in, you know, in software too. Okay, sure. But open sourcing it doesn't mean it's easy to install and run. Yep. I mean, it, the, honestly, to me, the biggest risk seems like when you open source this stuff, you are... Rev- if there's security holes, I think that's the biggest risk. Because if you op- if everything becomes open, there's going to be too much open source software, and there's not going to be enough eyes to catch the security flaws until the people who have an incentive to catch it and catch it, and then start mining Bitcoin on your infrastructure. That's the real risk. That's fair from my perspective. Yeah, I, I, and if you think of if you take a as a customer or an enterprise customer, right? One of the things that you know why open source is interesting is am I betting, am I making architectural bets that, you know, for the next five years on technology that, you know, essentially limits me from having other choices or, 
you know, ties me to a single vendor or all those things, right? So open source is emerging as a way to kind of reduce those effects. So like if I make a decision to use MySQL, I know I can get MySQL from a number of different providers, including on-premise and, you know, all those different places. If I use something like DynamoDB, that's available in exactly one place, right? And so you could apply that logic to, you know, all the different things that are part of your stack. Like if I use Kubernetes, I know I can get Kubernetes everywhere now, right? Um, if I use IAM and I do create all these policies around, you know, IAM, we yet still using Kubernetes, does that limit my choice? <laughs> yes. Right. And so, so you're like, okay, so what, how, what's the definition of how, how do you get more open? Why, why, how do we, is that important to the customers? Is it not? Is it? Well, but it's in the best interest of the cloud providers because what we've seen is what I have found kind of inspiring about the uh, CN, the uh, KubeCons is like as the community has become more open, the wallets of the enterprises have become more open. And it's shown us that these enterprises are not stupid. They're making purchasing decisions because things are more open. And it feels like okay, actually, maybe they have been gun-shy about AWS for a while because it's closed and it looks like an Oracle database, basically. And enterprises are not stupid. They got burned. They're not going to get burned again. So even AWS, you should become more open because the enterprises are going to open their wallets more. Right. And so, so if you do that... One, I'd say it's hard to do right now because they've built a ton of proprietary stuff that would be really hard to kind of decouple from <laughs> yes. everything else. Sure, naturally. Um, but it's like the Borg problem. It is the Borg problem. That's exactly right. And so, I mean, even uh, a lot of the things that Google's building today, even GKE and right. others are tied to right. Borg and everything else, right? And so you think about that and it's like, okay, well, how do we, should we like re-architect and open up our control planes or do we continue making, you know, business as usual? And like, and, and so at some level, I feel like part of the motivation of something like Crossplane is to say, hey, here's an idea. Why don't we start a community effort around a multi-cloud control plane? Maybe that could be the basis of you know, open up more of the cloud surface area than just the runtimes. How tricky would it be for you to do? I mean, I'm sure you thought about this, but how tricky would it be to do the hybrid plus multi-cloud control plane through cross-plane? I think it's a really interesting scenario. And I think the idea that we were talking about of uh, having claims that can be bound to different implementations of them. Actually, we just showed a demo. We came out of a talk just before this uh, at KubeCon where you know there was a Postgres claim being fulfilled bound to a cockroach DB cluster, which speaks Postgres on the wire, uh, orchestrated by Rook on premise. So you basically have an application that says I want Postgres. So uh, you know it specifies a claim for Postgres. If you're running in AWS, you get that through RDS. If you're running in Google, you get there through Cloud SQL. If you're running on-premise, you get it through CockroachDB cluster running uh, orchestrated with Rook on-premise. And that's the application does not care. Well, 
why would they do that? Why would what, what do you get? I mean, I know CockroachDB gives you more uh, availability or uh, not 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 availability global consistency, right? That's right. So in this got, case, we're using Cockroach as if it was a Postgres database because that's what was available in the, for this demo. But the nice thing about Cockroach is it does speak Postgres on the wire. That speaks the Postgres. So I don't understand why they didn't just use Postgres or. Oh, because it actually has better scale properties and it has, you know, it's easier to manage than a classic Postgres database. So you could actually drop and replace Postgres with a cockroach cluster. Changing the topic. So you listened to that Eric Brewer episode and that long 30 minute preamble I did that kind of talked about the intricacies of the different clouds. What was your perspective on that? Was was there anything you thought? thought I got wrong about the dynamics of the cloud provider wars? I think you should do more preambles like this, the okay. long ones. That's, that was my perspective on it. I, I thought it was good. I thought that there's definitely really interesting dynamics happening right now between the different cloud providers. Um, it's Game of Thrones. And, and the open source community in general. I it's say. so political. It is very political. And, you know, it's not surprising. I mean, they're they're all... They're all in. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting. I, I'm part of why I'm excited about being in the space right now is I feel like, you know, the open source community will needs to be more involved in this game. We were initially introduced by Joseph, Joseph Jacks from OSS Capital, and when he started that venture firm, I thought I was like okay, like nice to marketing strategy for your infrastructure venture capital firm. Like, okay, it's nice, cool. You only invest in open source companies, big deal. He, I think he saw something ahead of time that open source really is transforming the software industry. And because it is so transformative, there are some dramatic changes that occur in the diplomacy of different software companies with each other, of the go-to-market strategies of these different companies, of the herding of cats of all the different software development communities. There are so many changing dynamics. Yeah, that- it's a movement. It's a, it goes beyond just you know an Apache license on a code repository, for sure. And like the politics, it's not just the major cloud providers, you also have kind of the the burgeoning companies like you or GitLab or Buoyant. You have like some kind of dark horses like Mesosphere or DigitalOcean. As one of these companies that is deep in this political space, do you have any any suggestions for like companies that are on on the upstart and they're starting to see that, okay, there are all these different relationships and alliances and collaborations. What are your general principles for intercompany dynamics? One suggestion I would have is that try to get traction with the community first. So get folks that are engineers, DevOps, developers in general, using your projects, your uh, giving you feedback, get traction with the community. And when you get traction with the community, it's hard to ignore. You know, uh, it, it, you could use that to help with some of these relationships and dynamics that you're talking about. So if you 
you know, you're a small company and you're basically trying to navigate through all the different political issues and, you know, and, and, and business issues without a community backing, it's, it's a lot harder. What is unique about building a company in this space that you could tell me that I'm unlikely to hear from anyone else? <laughs> I, I'd say that it's really easy to be dissuaded from entering a space like this or thinking about, you know, is this even possible? But I would argue that this cycle of disruption or going from things that are proprietary open has ha- happened many times. And I feel like if you p- have a team that's passionate about delivering something in the space, that it's, it's likely you're likely to actually make it happen. How did you manage to, I don't know how you managed to raise money and then build a team around this idea because you, when you started, when you just had Rook, you were so far from having anything concrete in place around actually making a multi-cloud thing happen. I think we had, I mean, we're still early. I can tell you that, you know, we're... Do you ever feel dissuaded even today? Like in the- As a startup founder, you, you know, you go through uh, the ebbs and flows of uh, being dissuaded and optimistic on a, you know, every minute. So, no, I, I mean, I feel, obviously, I feel very, you know, passionate about this problem and the team around Upbound and the team around all these, the community around each of our projects. I feel like is passionate about the space. And as a result, I mean, we hope to get more people and around it. And, and I think things like this happen. Uh, if you, you know, or can get the right set of folks that are passionate about them, it, they just, they happen. So that's. <laughs> Do you ever reflect on the question of kind of fake it till you make it? Cause like you see, Sometimes this this works out well. Like I think you your company is a case of of you know when I met you two years ago and you we were talking about this, you know I was like cool cool vision. Like clearly you're a smart guy. You know I look you in the eyes and it seems like you sincerely believe that this is something that's going to exist whether you build it or not, and you can convince me of that. But then you see something like Theranos and it's like wow huh you know fake it till you make it has a cost or you see something like Istio and it's like not to compare Istio to Theranos or to compare you to Istio or to compare you to Theranos. But there is this dynamic where you lay out a vision. The vision is important. You get some money and then you market that vision. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it ends up looking like snake oil. And the only people who end up writing the historical story are the winners that's right i would say though that even when you look at large companies that are pushing new initiatives and potentially new infrastructure and new platforms i'd say would you not say that they're you know also fake it until you make it absolutely (laughs) so that happens outside of start it happens in big companies as well right i think that you have to have you know a deep belief that you know, and a vision around what needs to happen and you have to hit it hard. And if you're right about it and you are able to execute against that, then you get to tell great stories about it. And if you don't, then it, it doesn't happen. Unless the Wall Street Journal writes a great story about it. Wall Street Journal has not written about Istio. Are the service mesh wars winner take all? 
No, I don't think so. Actually, I was in, interested to, like, it, I think it was interesting to hear about SMI yesterday. Or Does that seem like a good abstraction to you? <laughs> Explain what SMI is to the extent that you understand it. It's essentially a, an interface for service meshes so that you could plug in different service meshes as, as I understood it. And it, I haven't, I've spent like two minutes on it. So, I mean, I, I think that, I, I don't think it's a winner take all. I think it's a really interesting thing that's happening, but I don't see it as a, a winner takes all. But here's the thing. Your service mesh is going to need a bunch of integrations, correct? Mm-hmm. Those integrations are going to be written by ISVs, independent software vendors. They are not going to want to write multiple integrations. They're not going to want to write an integration for Istio and an integration for Linkerd. That, to me, seems... Doesn't SMI essentially help with that? Yeah, maybe, but wouldn't it just be easier if we just had one service mesh? Like, I feel like we went through this with container orchestration wars. This was the same thing. We, You can remember from KubeCon or DockerCon, whatever, 2015, 2016, we support Docker Swarm and Mesosphere and Kubernetes and, you know... And, and we ended up with CRI. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, I guess. I mean, tell me, tell me more about CRI. How does CRI map to that, that historical I mean, you narrative? You can plug in your container runtime behind the CRI interface, and whether it's Docker runtime or Rocket or all those different runtimes. And what's the, what's the most popular runtime? Is it Docker, the Docker runtime? The Container D one. Container D. So. That's the one that kind of displaced Docker. Well, it's the same one that's used by Docker. Oh, the same one that's used by Docker. Well, then that one won, right? So then you have an interface. But it sits behind a, essentially an interface, CRI, right now, and for Kubernetes consumes it through CRI, as I understand it. So you could look at SMI and say, you know, here's, a, here's an interface to consume service meshes mm. or use service meshes. Mm. There might still be a dominant service mesh behind right, it. Right, right, right. But it's now, you could argue, you know, standardized. And if there are, to your point of, you know, all these folks that are doing integrations, if they do integrate at the SMI line, then maybe the problem gets easier for all of them too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's uh, early. I've, it's early. And, yeah. and again, this is, you know, uh, it's speculation. This yeah. is pat- pattern matching it's on, pattern the, matching, uh, which on, is on what the I'm other stuff. Right? Yeah. That's all I'm doing. So. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. You think I'm too hard on Istio? N- not really. <laughs> Why did you raise money from Google Ventures? Did you think about going with Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz or any of the other major venture capital firms? I think you uh, pick, if there's a lot of VC attention, you get to pick the one that you think is the best fit at that time. And so we thought GV was the best fit for us at the Series A. We really liked them. They've been super helpful. So that's why we went with them. Last question. It's mid 2019 what are the competitive dynamics between google cloud and aws well aws has the dominant market share i'd say that you know if you look at what google's done if i understand it correctly is that they essentially went after a more open source model that's why kubernetes was open sourced to essentially level the playing field around compute and containers. And that was quite successful. Amazon now supports Kubernetes, so you could argue that whatever move 
happened with Kubernetes as a threat has somewhat been neutralized now in the sense that, yeah, I mean, you can get, you can go run on EKS is it's, you know, from a, I can tell you from a tech standpoint, it's GKE is a lot more usable than EKS, but you still get Kubernetes in both places and you can run your stuff there. Um, I think the, you know, if you think about the dynamic, I'd argue that I'd argue that Google has more has to do more plays to try to get more market share. And taking the more open cloud, I think the what they've done with working with companies like Elastic and and you know Mongo and others to bring their managed services into Google's cloud offering are really interesting moves. Whereas Amazon is taking the, you know, we're gonna protect our supply chain of open source and we'll do whatever is needed to do to keep the open source supply chain what do you think of that whole licensing debate elastic search getting angry at google redis getting angry at google at amazon you mean already amazon yeah. sorry i mean it's an interesting dynamic it's you know amazon did amazon do anything wrong that was what i what i took issue with is they they the elastic search for example the elastic the blog post from the elastic search i think the ceo or the founder was very indicting of AWS and I was like it's open source there's no rules yeah i mean i think the if you step back and look at that dynamic you could argue that amazon is saying that the open source community is welcome to have a business around you know open core selling commercial software on top of open source and they should do that and they should do it cleanly like as in you know keep you can make business on it. You can make professional support on it. You can do all that stuff. But when it comes to a SaaS business that they would like to do it on their platform and make sure it's, you know, protected from that perspective. I, w- I often wonder why, what happened in the, why didn't Amazon, for example, make a deal, a biz dev deal to bring in one of these commercial open source companies and have them run as a, managed service on Amazon platform. Like, was it a failure in agreeing on a price or was it even attempted? I thought if you bought Elasticsearch from Elastic on the Amazon marketplace, that is the kind of deal. Like, that is the biz dev deal. Well, let's let's take that case specifically. So Amazon has an Elasticsearch service. They've had one since, I think, 2015. Yes. Right? It's based on the upstream version. It's called Amazon Elasticsearch Service. Correct. And it's based on the upstream version of Elasticsearch. Right. Elastic NV, the company, has a downstream version with commercial modules and all sorts of differentiated features that they've built, right? So if you wanted to use some of those commercial features, you actually have to buy a license from Elastic or use their managed service offering. It's not there. It wasn't available on the Amazon platform right. from Amazon. Yeah. You could buy the those, you know, the managed service offering from Elastic and V, the company. You couldn't buy it on the Amazon marketplace? It. Well, no, you can go through them and they would deploy the deploy it in Amazon even within the same VPC. But you're not at that point you're so you not, can talk to Elastic and say, hey Elastic, spin me up a cluster. They spin it up for you. They spin it up for you and you can they can put it in the same VPC and so you can connect to it. But you don't get IM integration, you don't get CloudWatch, you don't get oh. it's a separate world. Wait, why can't you you can't do that through the marketplace, the Amazon marketplace? 
In a marketplace, you de- essentially de- deploy AMIs on, you know, your oh, that's VPC. Amazon machine instances. That's right. You deploy Amazon machine instances and you run them. If you want to use, uh, if you want somebody to actually run a managed service offering, that they're doing the backups, they're doing the whole thing. You have to go through their managed, a managed service offering. So you're either running Amazon's managed service and using the upstream version of, or you leaving the walled gardens of Amazon, you're leaving the IAM integration, CloudWatch integration, everything else, and going to Elastic's offering, which has a ton of features, but is not as integrated into the Amazon platform as you know they'd like to be. And so your choice becomes, do I use a good enough Elastic service and it's fully integrated? I get, it's one API click away. It's integrated with IAM, it's CloudWatch, everything, cloud formation. The whole thing is integrated. So the analogy here is like, if you use an iPhone, Siri always tries to get you to use Apple Maps. And you're like, Siri, stop it. Let me use Google Maps. And it's like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm giving you the fully integrated You got the fully integrated experience. That is worse. That's right. It's integrated, but it's worse, which is what Amazon Elasticsearch services relative to the one that you buy from Elastic. Because right. for Elastic, it's existential. Right. They button up the buttons and, you know, zip up the zippers, and it's much, much better, is my understanding. Like, it's not just incrementally better. It's, it's better, significantly but it's better. not as integrated. Not as, as integrated. Yeah, that's the, so it basically right. becomes a trade-off between deep integration and good enough yeah. or, you know, best of breed but not integrated, isolated, fragmented, mm-hmm. right? And so that dynamic is really what's at play here. And so what, when Elastic, the company, relicensed and started saying that, you know, we're guarding against hosting of our service, Amazon could have taken one of two choices. They could have said, okay, let's go, you know, work with them yeah. and bring the best of breed offering in and make it integrated into Amazon. Right, that requires biz dev. That requires a relationship. I'm sure I can. I would bet money that it was attempted, but they couldn't agree. And so, as a result, Amazon reacted with, "Okay, well, we're going to create a new distro for." Let's be honest. Elastic didn't have a whole lot of leverage in that conversation. That's right. But like, if you look at Google, and this is why I was saying Google Cloud was kind of interesting here, is that they took a different approach. Google totally. Cloud said. You know what? We will work with you. We will bring Elastic with all the features and best of breed, and we'll try to integrate it as deeply as possible into the Google Cloud platform. That's a you know, and and I believe Azure is doing the same. So that's a different approach for partnership, and than Amazon has taken with at least in this case Elastic. It's a bright world for crossplane. I we think so. Yeah. Well, Basam, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been really fun talking. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here. Wow.